2: Today, we're talking about Denver's loss to Kansas City in the finale, finishing 5-11 and securing the fifth overall pick in the draft. John Elway choosing to retain Vance Joseph. The two meeting with the media. We're going to break it all down. You are listening to the Huddle Up Podcast.
0: Welcome to the Huddle Up Podcast, your go-to show for all things Broncos.
2: Welcome in, everybody, to the Huddle Up podcast presented by Mile High Huddle. It's time to exercise those demons from 2017. We're in 2018. Happy New Year to everybody. Hope you had a great holiday season. I'm your host, Chad Jensen, Scout Media, CBS Sports Digital. With me, as always, my partner in crime, Will Keyes, editor and writer at Mile High Huddle. Will, Happy New Year, buddy
1: happy new year to you Um, I'm ready to put 2017 in the rear view what about you
2: yeah amen to that in terms of uh, what happened with the Broncos and like Elway said nobody's happier than me to put 2017 behind us and we, uh, we got a lot to get to today, but please understand we're here to give you a deep dive each and every week on your favorite team, the Denver Broncos. We ask for your help. We ask that you take some time and go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform in which you listen to this show. Leave a creative review. Rate the show. Very important. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at HuddleUpPod. Make sure you're subscribing because it's going to be an absolutely critical offseason, and you're not going to want to miss a single episode now before we dive in real quick we want to say thank you to our sponsor audible get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash huddle up over 180,000 different titles to choose from for your iphone android kindle or mp3 player that's audibletrial.com slash huddle up again this is something i use on a daily basis i was listening to a book today Uh, called The Obsidian Chamber by Douglas Preston a Lincoln Child, just kind of a psychological thriller type deal. You know, I don't always have time to sit down and turn the pages on the books that I want to read, but whether I'm working out at the gym or in the kitchen or in my commutes, I fit them in, and it's fun. It's great. And if you take the opportunity to try that, get the trial, get the free book, I assure you, you're going to be stoked. You're going to want to keep it. You're going to come back, and you're going to say thank you to us for turning you on to Audible and getting that free book out of it. So go to audibletrial.com slash huddle up. All right, now we are going to talk, of course, a lot about Elway and Joseph's end-of-season presser here in just a few. But first, we want to touch on just a few notes from Week 17. In the season finale, of course, your Denver Broncos dropped their 11th game of the season despite a late fourth-quarter comeback falling 27-24 to the Kansas City Chiefs. Paxton Lynch squared off against Pat Mahomes, two former first rounders, and Mahomes emerged victorious. Despite, you know, the the relative lack of experience compared to Lynch, he just looked like a more pro-ready quarterback, in my opinion. What do you think of Lynch and Mahomes on Sunday, Will?
1: Well, I, I think there was really nowhere to go but up for Paxton Lynch, and he definitely played uh, a lot better. I think he looks a lot more comfortable, uh, confident, and... I think the Broncos played to his skill set a little bit better than they did in the Raiders game. Um, threw the ball well to DT. Obviously had a couple turnovers, um, and I think Vance Joseph alluded to it in the press conference. So that second one, it was on mm-hmm. fourth and goal, and, and it wasn't a, a good throw by any means, but you know, it's a fourth and goal from like the 15-yard line type you throw. take a chance. Yeah, where you're taking a chance, and so you you know you can't really fault him too much. So overall, you know, I give him somewhere around like a B minus. Um, and given how he played in the Raiders game, I I don't think expectations were really high. So yeah, overall, I think a pretty solid outing. Uh, as for Mahomes, uh, Mahomes, I guess I always get tripped up with that. It sounds <laughs> like someone's sounds like someone just saying like Mahomes, <laughs> Mahomy, Mahomes. Yeah. It's a little bit of slang. It sounds. I hate to I hate to do this, but because you know everybody likes to compare every young quarterback to Ben Roethlisberger, and I feel like I've been talking about this for a couple years now. How it's like Bortles? He looks like the next Roethlisberger. Cam yeah, he Noon. actually kind of looks like him, like literally. Oh, like physically, face, yes, he actually kind of looks like him. Yeah, so I'll understand that one. <laughs> Um, probably the same uh, intelligence quotient as well, but that might be another, <laughs> might be a tale for another time. Indeed. But yeah, it, it's such a trope, but I'm going to have to use it here with Mahomes because he was making some throws that came so late in the play like he was getting wrapped up and then he just kind of flings it and he's like oh this should go you know 40 yards out Mm -hmm. of bounds and then suddenly albert wilson comes up with it yeah and and runs for 20 more yards and that was just kind of what it was It, it looked like philip rivers sort of in terms of just like being the king of throwing a pass that should go nowhere and somehow it's caught and Ben yeah. Roethlisberger in terms of branching tackles, so that's you know how I could would kind of define it. I Mahomes. had a friend,
2: uh, a colleague who, his name's Seth Kaiser, that works for uh, Arrowhead Pride, SB Nation's uh, Kansas City Chiefs report. That he and I go back a little a little ways, and he reached out and he's like, I wanted to get some outside opinion on Pat Mahomes, what you thought of him, and what I told Seth was basically that. I was impressed – I mean, there was multiple things to take away from Mahomes' performance, but what really impressed me was his poise under pressure and in, in the clutch. And when I say in the clutch, I'm not just meaning late in the game, even though he was when he had to come back in uh, to save the win, but rather just anytime it was third down, he was under pressure, he
0: right. just
2: found a way to make the play. And his mobility, obviously his toughness, his arm talent is ridiculous. He might be the most talented just from a pure throwing perspective quarterback i've seen in a long long time now paxton lynch this is a guy that took a step forward but it unfortunately was nowhere and we talked about this last week but yeah. it wasn't it doesn't change the game in terms of what denver has to do in 2018 but if it did anything it helped solidify and build up maybe a little bit of trade value that Paxton Lynch can be reclaimed. That they, Someone out there, if they're willing to put in the time and give him a shot, might be able to capitalize on his immense physical gifts if they can figure out how to get what's between his ears moving in the right direction. Now, one thing that happened on Sunday that really irritated me was on the opening drive, Kansas City, they march down, they get that big third down conversion with Mahomes hitting the seam, 51 yards, whatever that was, only to have Kareem Hunt just rip off a whatever it was, 35-yard touchdown.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you watch that play, Akib Tlaib, you know, he's standing on the left-hand side where he usually is, left corner, outside corner. And Hunt breaks through the front seven. Talib has a great angle on him. That play should have been wrapped up for about a 12-yard gain. Tlaib just stops. He just lets him run right by him all the way for a touchdown. And what's interesting about that is you wonder why. You talk about you try and think about why someone who's going to a Pro Bowl this year, someone has tenured and experienced, and a captain, for crying out loud, would just give up on a play like that. And it was interesting. I was listening to The Drive on 104.3 The Fan uh, on my commute home today. This is Tuesday. And Mac was talking about this situation, talking about Talib, and he said that he has sources, and I believe him because he's in the building just about every day, coaches on the staff who have told him that Aqib Tlaib does not like Vance Joseph. So considering that, do you interpret that the same way? From the outside looking in, seeing what Tlaib did there, just his lack of effort on the hunt TD. I can't see it any other way than him. I don't think it was just him going, I don't want to risk my body, the season's almost over to hell with it. It was, he was sending some kind of a message there.
1: Well, Yeah, so I originally saw the play and I kind of saw it from afar, so I didn't really see exactly what happened that you were referring to until I just watched it uh, a few minutes ago on replay, where I could like back it up, you know, five times and look at it carefully. And he's just like taking really, really choppy steps, and he could have easily gotten to Kareem Hunt, you know, given how long Talib is. Mm hmm. And yeah, I think it's pretty apparent. And and usually I would kind of dismiss this as kind of a, you know, classic radio guy hot take. Um but no, he definitely gave up on that play. Um and that's not something that you you see too often from really anyone on the defense. Yep. But to project it to something like him, you know, not getting along with the head coach, I can't do that really just because well, I'm not Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say you and i we don't have
2: or i can speaking for myself i don't have particular insight on Taleb other than what i hear someone like uh Dmac talk about and you know we hear things time to time covering the team remotely and and not being there each and every day at Dove Valley but right. clearly Akib Taleb was sending a message this is this is my interpretation of it when i watched the play And I didn't necessarily, when I watched it, of course, go, oh, he hates Vance Joseph. But it was him saying something. And that is that basically, you know, if you look at the Broncos' problem this year, one of the big ones, and and Elway and Joseph, which we're going to get to here in a few minutes, talked quite a bit about it, was the culture. And the culture is kind of a rotten foundation in Denver. You've got a bunch of tenured veterans who've gotten to the top of the mountain, guys like Tlaib who have accomplished it all. They've won Super Bowls. In comes a young head coach. And, you know, it's kind of the idea of, look, we've we've done it all. We know how to do this. What do you know? What have you accomplished? And little things like that. And it's not just the players. I think Elway was living in the past a little bit. But definitely some of the players and probably some of the coaches, which we'll get to here in a few minutes, living in the past. And it's time for a fresh outlook on this team. They, the Broncos have to purge some of this old blood that was tied to Super Bowl 50 because for whatever reason, Aqib Tlaib, yeah. I mean, you look at what he did in his time. He's He's a guy that probably ends up – in the Ring of Fame. I mean, once he retires, he comes back. He'll he he deserves to be in the Ring of Fame. He's made an enormous contribution to the Broncos franchise. But I think his time is done. I think the Broncos can get some good value for him. You know, it's funny because just a week and a half ago, after the Pro Bowl was announced, I wrote a piece on huddlecom talking about how Talib has you know found a way to get some leverage back in terms of going into next year with the Broncos, and that might be true, but. I do think John Elway and the Broncos, considering they're wanting to kind of, you know, rinse themselves of the filth and the dirt and some of the baggage from this season, they mm-hmm. can get some value for he's, he You know, he's going to be 32, but he's coming off another Pro Bowl season and there is going to be a team out there who's going to be willing to give up a little something to get him.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, hopefully you can find a, a a trading partner rather than just kind of cutting dead weight and then cutting the cost. Um, but you'd have to think, you know, that pushes Chris Harris up to the number one cornerback role. Um, Bradley, Her- Bradley Harris, Bradley Roby, um, on the on the outside, and then you have to think who you're going to play in that slot corner. Do you draft a guy? Um, do you think that Brandon Langley can fill in? Um, no, no, we know. Uh, at least not anytime soon. I mean, he's yeah. still got a long way to go. Right. We saw a, a limited look at him on defense this year, and. Not great. Um, mm. Probably a better special teams performer right now, but he, you know, he's an athletic guy who, who's not necessarily super familiar with the position yet, so uh, he's he just going to take time. And you know, hopefully, lives up to that third round billing. Uh, and then you have guys like Marcus uh, Rios who uh, have made some plays but are kind of inconsistent. So, you know, you have to really think about. It is kind of like what John Elway brought up in the press conference, and I think we'll get to it later. But you know, taking away from a strength to Mm. to bolster the other side of the football and it maybe wasn't so feasible a couple years ago when you think we have the best defense in the league hands down and we're going to do everything we can to keep it and why take a single piece away from it because we've got that winning formula but now that you don't have a winning formula anymore and you're five and eleven and you're kind of lost Yep. you know maybe you are more willing to make those moves and maybe that starts with talib Absolutely, and it's going to be a very interesting
2: offseason because to lead there's other guys. It'll you know expensive veterans making a lot of money. It'll be interesting to see how it hap, uh, how it shakes out. Now there's a couple of rookies that really shined that I want to touch on before we jump into Vance Joseph and, and John Elway on Sunday against the Chiefs, and we'll start with Hop himself, D'Angelo Henderson, explosive playmaking ability from the little man, the Broncos running back, the rookie. It wasn't C.J. Anderson showing off that skill set. It was D'Angelo Henderson who took a screen pass, 29 yards to the house, breaking at least three tackles on his way to Pater. That should have been wrapped up for about a seven- or eight-yard gain, but he took it to the house. And seeing him will impact the game like that immediately. I mean, it was like a lightning strike. He came in, he touched the ball, touchdown. Again, I was confounded by Denver and Vance Joseph's inability to – see that potential and that skill set and that ability and find a way to get this kid on the field when the team was floundering, when the formula was not working. Why did you not put this kid on the field? Because it's not like this is the first time we've seen him make a play. I mean, he was absolutely electric in the preseason.
1: Right. Well, that is a tough question because for most of the season and obviously up until the end of the season when Jamal Charles kind of got... Been out of shape, I guess you could say, uh, about his playing time or whatnot. But we have to remember that was, if I'm not mistaken, D'Angelo Henderson's second touch ever in the NFL. um, Given that he had he had a reception for something like four yards against Washington, kneeing a a
2: kickoff. You know, catching the kickoff and kneeing in the end zone. He had a reception, and that was
1: his second career touch, which was also a reception. That's pretty that's pretty impressive so that's a a good 500 batting average as far as touchdowns per touch he has a lot of good wiggle i think and he he sees the the field obviously really well and he's able to set his blocks up i clearly he's learned something from cj anderson in terms of kind of uh, maneuvering around Mm -hmm. the field and, and getting up the field after screen passes if I had to compare him to someone, he kind of looks like he's got a little bit of CJ in terms of just, uh, I guess, stature and then shape. He's kind of stout. right? He's very low to the ground. And I think he has a little bit of Deion Lewis, too. Maybe it's just the 33, but mm-hmm. he's got that wiggle, and I, I like it.
2: He's got a bright future in Denver, and you're going to see him featured quite a bit more in 2018. But that it didn't stop with Henderson. The Broncos played their rookie second-rounder inside on the defensive line instead of outside linebacker. And wouldn't you know, Demarcus Walker played at a dominant level. He didn't just have a flash play. He was dominant. He notched his first career sack from the three-tech position inside, finished with four total QB pressures and two run stops. It was great to see. And again, just another example, Will, of the bizarre coaching decisions on the personnel side, standing Walker up, putting him on the edge, rather than playing him at the position in which he wins.
1: Yeah I don't know if this means that they don't move him back to his original position in the future but I like what I saw out of him obviously that sack was a really good note to end the season on but just taking a wider view on this that's a really encouraging way to to end the season for the rookie class to see D'Angelo Henderson score a touchdown Mm -hmm. and then Demarcus Walker play a really dominant game so I think I think that's a a really good note to end on and it kind of Gets things going in the right direction for 2018. Garrett Bowles had his best game in many, many weeks as well. So that he did.
2: Good point. Good point. So, you know, it felt like going through this season, much of this rookie class was wasted, but it looks like there's a lot more potential diamonds in that rough than was apparent halfway through this year. Now, after the Broncos lost to the Chiefs, all signs pointed to Vance Joseph getting the ax. We Mile High Huddle shared some info that was gleaned from a team source with our VIP subscribers that indicated Joseph would be fired after the game. Elway, it, which kind of bolsters this being true, kept the local media around much later than usual because it was expected that he was going to announce Joseph's being dismissed and then make himself available to answer some, some questions. But he had a change of heart. Instead, Elway chose to sleep on the decision, and it saved Joseph's job. On Monday, Elway met with team president Joe Ellis, along with guys like Gary Kubiak, Matt Russell, the Broncos' brain trust. A couple of guys, and I won't say who, because Eric Trickle saved that info for our VIP subscribers, in that brain trust went to bat for Vance Joseph, arguing that the lack of stability at the quarterback position really tied Joseph's hands, that it limited Joseph's ability to lead the Broncos to some wins. And there's absolutely some truth to that. We've talked about it on this show multiple times. There were a few other factors that were addressed in that meeting in defense of Vance Joseph, including making sure that he would be on board with the team's plan to improve the roster in 2018, and he was. It was enough, ultimately, though, the decision beforehand to sway John Elway, the arguments made, and the Broncos, despite extreme pressure from the fan base and the media, chose to retain Vance Joseph for another year. Now, Will, your take on Joseph coming back, did the Broncos make the right decision?
1: I think given that Hugh Jackson has gone 1-31 in in the past <laughs> two seasons, and Vance Joseph went 5-11, I think he absolutely deserves to keep his job. Uh, but on a more serious note, he absolutely had a really tough situation as far as the quarterbacks and the offense really was just in shambles this season as it has been the last two years so i like the idea of having continuity and i like the idea of of letting a young coach learn and, and giving him a chance to rectify his mistakes and it, it like we talked about so many times before giving a, a coach a young coach, a first time head coach who's really just not that experienced and we knew that about Vance Joseph going into it giving him a chance to to move on to another year and kind of correct the things that he did wrong and and really grow as a head coach because not everybody's going to be Sean McVay and I think those are the expectations nowadays it's mm-hmm. kind of the expectations for guys in the draft and it's ex- it's the expectations for for a head coach but times it takes time for a lot of guys to grow into that position and I, I think that's that's the idea that John Elway has in mind that you know obviously he had quite a few growing pains iron them out a little bit near the end of the season obviously the the two game win streak and then they're really competitive in that chiefs game obviously had a chance to win it so you you want to see that I don't want to call it tremendous success at the end of the season, but potential uh, thing potential things moving in the right direction carry over to next year and say, "Well, we'll put this tough first, you know, freshman year behind us and and see if you can build on what you're trying to to cook up at the end of the season."
2: Well, and it should be pointed out for people pining and pointing to Sean McVay in, in LA, he walked into a situation where he had a quarterback. Now, Jared Goff had a disappointing rookie campaign, but he was also mired in a situation culturally, with his team, where it was very difficult for a young quarterback to succeed. But the talent was there, waiting for McVay when he arrived, and the same unfortunately can't be said for Vance Joseph. Now we could sit and talk about and argue how, you know, the Broncos had a Paxton Lynch just waiting for Joseph, but Joseph wasn't, re- or excuse me, Lynch, wasn't ready for the opportunity. The Broncos literally did everything they could possibly do in terms of opening the way other than just giving him the job and the reason he wasn't given the job was because up until that point in his career with the Broncos he had not shown them what they needed to see in order to feel confident in actually saying all right look we're just going to give this to you you're going to bump your head growing pains trial and error all that stuff but we're going to build around you we're going to roll with you you're the man He didn't show enough. So it's a different situation comparing what Joseph inherited to what McVeigh inherited. And I think, you know, as someone who, you know, people like us who make a living and talk about the Broncos and analyzing football and all that stuff, it would have been great. In that sense, I was disappointed, if I'm being honest, a little bit just in that sense that the Broncos did not fire Joseph because it would have been fun to go through the whole coaching search again and all the speculation and analysis. That would have been fun. But ultimately, what's best for the Broncos is the stability and, as you say, continuity. Now, Joseph survived, but six coaches were let go on Black Monday. The heads that rolled were due either to just the poor performance from their respective units or, in some cases... Going back to that culture thing, a desire to change culture in that particular room. Here's who got the axe, of course, no surprise. Brock Alevo, special teams coordinator. Eric Studisville, running back coach. Tyke Tolbert, and assistant head coach. It should be mentioned. Tyke Tolbert, wide receiver. Jeff, uh, wide receivers coach. Jeff Davidson, offensive line uh, coach. Pug, I'm not even going to try and pronounce his name. It's 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 a hard one. Pagack. <laughs> Pagick or whatever it is, outside linebackers, and then Johnny Lynn in the secondary. Now, in the case of Olivo, pretty clear why he was fired. Studisville and Tolbert getting the ax, they came as a little bit more of a surprise. And then Davidson, you know what, he's a Mike McCoy guy, and with Bill Musgrave being not only retained, but officially promoted to the full-time offensive coordinator position Moose wants to get his own guy in there to coach the offensive line, and Davidson, again, was kind of married to some of the same principles and philosophies that McCoy uh, was a proponent of that really failed the Broncos, so it made sense to move on from Davidson. And then Coach Pug, that surprised me a little bit, to be honest, because he played such a key role in Super Bowl 50 in the Broncos, you know, getting, what was it, 52, 94 sacks over two seasons. Uh, but right. ultimately, he was an Vance Joseph guy. And his unit just did not perform all that well in 2017 without Wade Phillips calling plays. Von Miller, he was good. He was his typical Von Miller self. He only had 10 sacks, though. And then you look at Shane Ray, you look at Shaq Barrett. I mean, what did they combine for? Four and a half, five sacks, something like that. So it's understandable why Coach Pug was let go. And then lastly, Johnny Lynn. This was an assistant to the actual Uh, secondary coach who is Marcus Robertson and when you consider that Robertson Joe Woods and Vance Joseph all have experience and expertise coaching the secondary it's just I think a case of too many cooks ruining the broth but did any of these firings surprise
1: you though Will? Wasn't surprised by Brock Olivo although I am sad to see him go he was just such a such an exciting character that (laughs) was (laughs) was just so much fun to watch him Talk in press conferences and and talk about, but he he truly put together one of the one of the more horrible special teams Indeed. units that I've ever seen. Uh, as far as Studisville and Tolbert really kind of surprised me. Studisville is just he's survived so many regimes. Like he he cleaned up the mess that Josh McDaniels made back in two thousand and ten. I think he did a really good job. And he, honestly, he's been a guy that has been supposed to be a, a pretty you know, solid head coaching candidate at right. some point. The Giants requested permission before he was right.
2: fired to interview him for the head coaching job.
1: So it is kind of bizarre that you would fire Eric Studisville rather than, you know, just give him permission to interview somewhere or, you know, maybe Studisville resigns or there's a mutual parting of ways because when you fire a guy that, that really hurts their their stock especially a guy trying to interview to be a head coach. Tolbert, you know, the wide receivers obviously didn't produce and that that's probably more due to the quarterback situation. Um but I think what it is mostly is is trying to kind of refresh the whole culture and mm-hmm. Vance Joseph talked about it a lot. Yep. And these aren't bad coaches. None of them are bad coaches. But sometimes you just need to make a change and you need uh a change of personnel, a change of scenery, you know whatever cliche you want to use, but nothing was working this year and you think, well these guys had so much success in the past, we could we could try to put it together again and see if we can recreate that. But he, it just doesn't always work out that way and these are good coaches that are probably going to find a home somewhere else oh, yeah. in the NFL. I would I would assume yep. very quickly. But I think it makes sense for the Broncos just in terms of kind of flipping over the whole culture, not, not only in the locker room, but you know, as an organization, I think.
2: Plus, just last thing on this, and then we'll move on. You look at Studisville, you look at Tolbert, great guys, deep roots in Denver, both of them yeah. been there through multiple regime changes, but been a long time since Tyke Tolbert developed a wideout that could come in and be an impact player. Took four years for Cody Latimer to really show any signs, you know, he... He had guys like Demarius Thomas, Eric Decker, Wes Welker, then Emmanuel Sanders all play at prolific levels, but no one from a young, starting at a young level, I mean, aside from Demarius Thomas, he played a a pivotal role along with Peyton Manning in developing Demarius, but he just didn't have any wins in terms of really pushing guys forward, developing guys in the room, and the same can be said, honestly, for Studisville, so... Again, none of these guys are terrible coaches, but a lot of it also comes down to a culture change. We're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But before we do, we want to holler at you about why you need to become a Mile High Huddle subscriber. The Huddle Up podcast, look, this is an extension of what we do at milehighhuddle.com. Most of you know this. Some of you don't. Our approach to covering the Broncos is isn't just about reporting the news. Everybody does that, and in fact, most sites stick to the newswire because that's what gets the clicks. What we focus on is breaking down your Denver Broncos in depth, whether it's all 22 film reviews, X's and O's, you know, deep diving on player evaluation, and now leading into the offseason, of course, NFL draft, free agency analysis, and we save our best And most in-depth content for our VIP subscribers, our premium members, to become a a Mile High Huddle VIP and get access to 100% of our written analysis, go to milehighhuddle.com. Just click on the green banner at the top of the website. It's pretty clear and easy to see. And you can choose a monthly or an annual subscription. Monthly costs 5 bucks. Uh, and if you go annual, you save 11 bucks for the year. Annual costs 49 bucks total. From there, you get access to everything we produce, which includes also any insider <clears throat> info that we pick up along the way, including what we're going to learn about Denver's intentions at the 2018 NFL Scouting Combine. And we work hard to bring you the best Broncos coverage and analysis on the web. And we ask for your support by becoming a VIP subscriber. You also get 20% off at... Fanatics, which is the same merchandiser used by the Denver Broncos and the NFL for your favorite jerseys or, you know, hats, posters, whatever you're into. So pull the trigger and you have my word, you won't be disappointed. All right, let's get to Elway and Joseph. As of course, as the Broncos do at the end of each and every season, GM John Elway grabs his head coach and they make themselves available to the media to answer questions, they reflect on the past season, and, of course, talk about the future. And on Tuesday, John Elway and Vance Joseph addressed the media together. And let's get this out of the way first. Right off the bat, Elway was asked, of course, why he ultimately chose to keep Vance Joseph after mulling it over overnight. Here's what he said.
3: Well, I mean, that's, that's the way that I wanted to go. I mean, uh, I think with... You know with Vance being here a year and and uh, <clears throat> getting a chance to go through things as a first-year head coach I'm sure that uh, as I told him many times he was drinking through a fire hose uh, mm-hmm. When you go through learning what it takes to be a head coach in this league because there's <clears throat> so much to it. So um, That's the direction I want to go, but it's my responsibility You know to to think about other options and uh, you know kind of see what would be best for uh, uh, the football team and so um, you know we thought about different options but uh, ultimately my goal was to stay with Vance and, and uh, give him that shot and, and obviously I would say that uh, giving him the best opportunity uh, to be successful. Um, you know and I, I don't feel like we gave him that chance even though um, you know we had some positions that did not play very well that I thought would play better than they played. Um, still didn't feel like <clears throat> we gave Vance the best opportunity to be successful. So that part's on me. And uh, we will get that part fixed also this this coming year and, and uh, hopefully solve those issues and, and give Vance and his staff um, the best opportunity to be successful. And, and so um, looking back, I I'm, I'm feel good about the fact that we can stay where we are. And, uh, you know, obviously with Vance making some changes on his staff that he'll talk about, Um, you know, we have a chance to to get better as a football team.
2: Well, Elway admits that he was considering all of his options, right? He was considering firing Vance Joseph. Of course, he and the Brain Trust surveyed, you know, the prospective coaching market, but they probably didn't feel like there was going to be anyone out there who was going to be available who would be a clear upgrade over Joseph. And we talked about this on the on the last episode in fact too that that's going to factor into the decision who can you get that's going to be better that you really believe is going to be better than Vance Joseph. Elway also takes some responsibility, personal responsibility for Denver's struggles and not keeping the personnel cupboards properly stocked if you will. But clearly, a big part of Elway's decision was not only the feeling that Joseph was not given the best opportunity to be successful, But also a big part of it was
1: just, as we've touched on, team stability and continuity. Yeah, it was almost kind of awkward watching the press conference right at the beginning because we're talking about, well, why did you decide to keep this guy? And meanwhile, the guy in question, Vance Joseph, is sitting three feet away (laughs) trying to answer answer questions (laughs) as to why in the world did you keep your job? And right. it's not that I, I don't agree with the decision to keep the job. It's just a, it's, I uh, imagine it like in any other profession, <laughs> yeah. having to answer questions about you know why you should have your job in, in front of the media and ultimately thousands of people watching online. But, and also after a, a year of absolute and abject failure. Yeah, very, very public failure in front of everybody. And more to the point, though, I think Elway did a good job of taking responsibility his fair share of responsibility because I think that's been one of the criticisms of John Elway that you know if things don't go right he's just going to fire the head coach and I think it takes a lot of courage for a guy who's basically always been the man in this one city in Denver Colorado since he was drafted by the Colts traded in 1983 to say things didn't go right and it's not all my fault but I need to be better And obviously, he touched on that with with D-Mac. I don't know if you you caught that little... Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about that here in just a minute. So save that. That D-Mac jab at the end. Um, But, yeah, I, I think he made a good point that he does need to do a little bit better in terms of you know, keeping the cupboard stacked for whoever the head coach is. And we've gotten to a point, I think, in sports and and particularly the NFL, just because it's the most popular and most scrutinized sport, where we love to shift the blame all on one person. And this year, um, whether it was Trevor Simeon at one point or Paxton Lynch or Brock Osweiler or Vance Joseph or Brock Olivo, it's never one person. And more often than not, it's just – a portion of the blame is going to be shifted around to just about every individual in the organization.
0: I think John Elway did a good job. job of recognizing that, taking the blame, his fair share
1: of blame, not too much because obviously he's not all all to blame. Um, and also giving Vance Joseph a second chance and saying, I know things didn't go right, but we're going to try to fix it. It's just
2: important, you know, in terms of if Vance Joseph doesn't work out and they have to hire a new coach. We've talked about it many, many times, the idea of becoming a franchise considered league-wide to be coach killers. You know, the Broncos just have to – they had to take a step back under extreme scrutiny and pressure from the fan base and say what is best for us not only in the short term but long term. And obviously they were very sold and moved by Vance Joseph's presentation now three years ago in 2015 when he interviewed for the defensive coordinator job and then even more so when he was hired for the head coaching job. And it's time to just look you know what, do a better job in terms of personnel acquisition and see and and maybe make some tweaks to the coaching staff and see if you can do better. Now getting back to what can Vance Joseph do better, we can go through a litany of things that Joseph didn't do well in his first year as a head coach, whether it's bizarre personnel decisions, all the way down to how he handled certain situations on game day, but when asked to explain where he believed he failed in his first year, Joseph was quite circumspect. Here's what he said. Well, it wasn't
3: Something I you know, I didn't expect as far as uh, being head coach I've been in this league a long time, but obviously things come up, you know, that's not uh, Not football related, you know as a as a first-time head coach. I can say this, you know um, You know early on in the season I didn't do a good job of pushing our coaches, you know to make the proper changes that I thought you know could have helped us I allowed guys to obviously coach, you know, I was that was my goal, but I wasn't very good at coaching the coaches, you know. So I'll get better at that, um, you know. So that was one of my shortcomings. But again, it's a, it's it's a big job, and it's a job that you can get better at, you know. And I will get better at those things. But obviously, when you're five and eleven, um, it wasn't good enough, you know, from my cheer, you know, and that will change
2: he didn't do a good enough job of coaching the coaches. And that's interesting. Some of that, I think, had to do with hiring a tenured guy like Mike McCoy, who had been a head coach, had roots in Denver, where the kind of power dynamic might have been skewed. And some of it might have had to do with Joseph having to keep some of the guys on staff who weren't necessarily his picks, right? Guys like Studisville, Tolbert, Coach Pug, some of those guys. And then there's the inexperience when you talk about his struggles as a first-year head coach, Will. I mean, you put it all together and we get a more complete understanding of some of the internal obstacles that Joseph faced and why it resulted in 11 losses on the year.
1: Well, I think John Elway used a really good analogy about being a first-year head coach. And it's (laughs) it's like drinking out of a fire hose, which I think is a really perfect way to illustrate what it takes to be an NFL head coach. And I don't think people really understand the grind that NFL head coaches have to put up with. I, I think people should watch a lot more of hard knocks and all or nothing and those types of programs to kind of get a, a better appreciation for how much heart and soul these guys put into being a head coach. And so for some guys, like people always talk about being a football guy, and that's a very popular phrase now to describe some coaches, like like Mike Zimmer, Bill Belichick. Uh, some of those guys that just eat, sleep, live, breathe football, and I—we I, have to figure out if Vance Justice is one of those guys. And I think it, it was too hard to tell this year. But at, at the same time, I think you have to give him—you know—you have to give him the opportunity to see what he did wrong, obviously. And as long as he can take inventory on what went wrong in the 2017 season, and that won't be easy, just because there's a, a laundry list of things that really fell apart for the Broncos. And if he can see the problem and figure out a way to solve it and then actually execute it and, and solve that problem, um, that's the true test, I think, of Vance Joseph, Joseph as a head coach. And if he can't do it, then it's absolutely time to move on.
2: Yeah, he'll he'll get 2018 to write the ship. And if he can't do it, the Broncos, they're not going to show any more patience beyond that. But he's going to get, a, uh, I think, a better shot at really – putting forth his vision for the team. Because, again, you go back to Mike McCoy, and I know for a fact from what I've been told that Mike McCoy was a big part of Vance Joseph, uh, his presentation and getting the job. That was a Joseph decision, believe it or not. Joseph wanted Mike McCoy, but I don't think he anticipated the dynamic and how that changed and maybe took away from his power and his place on the team and how he was perceived. And he talked about, we won't play the, the clip, Uh, for the sake of time, but he talked about how things got out of control at times and he waited too long to implement his vision. And finally, speaking about the offense with all the turnovers and the identity issues, when Billy Musgrave was finally given the keys, it took a couple of games, but then you started to see a more efficient brand of football. It wasn't perfect by any stretch, but they protected the football much better under Musgrave. And you saw a more power-oriented run game. You saw some more, uh, you know, focus on the play action where you're sucking the, the guys underneath and going over the top. And that's more of the vision that Vance Joseph had for his team. And so going into his second year, putting the right coaches in place, keeping Musgrave, keeping Joe Woods, getting the right assistants in there and establishing the precedent that, you know what, Vance Joseph is the man. This is his vision in terms of coaching and what happens on the field and let him go out and execute it. Now another thing that popped up that we need to talk about here is leading up into Week 17, buzz began to circulate that Gary Kubiak was going to be given an expanded role with the Broncos' front office. Here's what Elway had to say about what Kubiak's going to be doing for the Broncos moving forward.
3: Well, we're going, to give, we're going to enlarge Gary's role as far as on a personnel side. So, <clears throat> right now, he was working in, in college as well as in really doing the offensive side of the football force. And so, Gary's now going to, I'm going to give him a larger role. He's going to be involved in free agency <clears throat> as well as a draft. So, um, he'll, uh, he's a guy that's got a lot of knowledge of football, very good evaluator, too. So, he'll help us in that area.
2: Will, I know some fans aren't too thrilled about Kubiak, the talent evaluator. I battled a few of them on Twitter and had to disabuse a few people of certain notions. <laughs> but I am thrilled. Honestly, he's been in this league for a long time, not only as a player, but as a coach. He's, he's seen the eras and how they have evolved and turned into different you know, ways of executing and succeeding in f- offensive football and then how to counter that defensively. He knows players with his knowledge, with his experience. He can be a great asset to Elway in the scouting and personnel acquisition process. As for a title, as Elway said, who the hell knows?
1: Right. And I think Gary Kubiak's one of the few guys in the league who has a really recognizable identity, especially as far as offense. And he's got a clear vision, and he knows what kind of guys he likes, and he he knows how to construct an offense. Obviously, you know, the offense— the offensive part never quite came to fruition, as much as it did in, you know, Houston at times, and then in Baltimore. Uh, as far as you know, finding a quarterback, a, a reliable offensive line in Denver, and and really getting to the to the heights that he found earlier in his career. But I'm glad to see Gary Kubiak getting another life in football in in this facet. Obviously, it's just good to see guys that have been around with the Broncos for. You know, as long as Elway has, obviously uh, spent time as a head coach and an offensive coordinator elsewhere in between. Um, But it it just kind of adds to a sense of, you know, identity as a franchise to get guys who have been there for so long in really meaningful positions. And I think one of the main complaints that people really had this season was that um, Elway was kind of given too much of of, of a role as far as personnel evaluation. In talent evaluation, and I think this will kind of take some of the pressure off of him because he really is sort of, you know, figurehead in, in the face of the Broncos at this point. And, and so I think anything you can do to, you know, take responsi- a little bit of responsibility away from him is probably a good point or is a good thing at this point. It's definitely a good balance to have because these guys have an intimate friendship. They go,
2: it goes yeah. back decades, and... You know, a guy like Matt Russell or some of the other uh, personnel executives, Elway might be running strong on a particular prospect. For example, just just to use this and say, you know, I'm really high on Demarcus Walker. I like what he does here and there. And some guys they might counter it and say, well, maybe think about this though, boss, and think about this, or you thought about that? But a guy like Kubiak might be able to come in and be like, John, no, John, dude listen up hey do you remember back in you know 92 we were going again it was exactly like this and we did that and no this isn't the guy let's move on here's another guy that kind of fits the same profile but let's look at his tools and the way he wins and you know just kind of that balance and someone that might you know not not to say check John Elway's power because I think John Elway has the amount of appropriate power I mean he's he's he knows what he's doing But Kubiak can be there as a sounding board of someone to kind of give him some perspective and balance what his responsibilities are and how he's seeing things in the personnel sense.
1: Well, it's never healthy for a general manager to be given absolute power or a head coach for that matter. And it's not healthy to be surrounded by yes men, because uh, when you, you know, toss an opinion against the wall, you don't want it to bounce right back to you. You want to get some feedback. You want people to disagree with you. And that's how you grow as a a talent evaluator, personnel evaluator. And obviously John Elway hasn't been doing this forever. Um, I think, you know, Gary Kubiak's been involved in the NFL, if you think about it, for years and years longer than Elway has, really, because Elway was doing things in between being a general manager uh, and playing quarterback, you know, some of the arena football league notwithstanding. But he's one of the the few guys, I think, that is on an equal plane of respect as John Elway. And he's a guy that, Gary Kubiak, is a guy that John Elway will listen to. And so I, I think it really is, you know, healthy and a good idea to keep a guy around, who's going to keep you in check, like you said, and maybe think, maybe make you think twice, yeah. and not really letting your ego run out of control. Not to say it has, but just to make sure it doesn't.
2: Well, and and the upside too is that they share the same philosophies by and large. I mean. Yeah. The successes that the, the greatest successes both of them have had in their respective careers have come together. So they have that shared history and that shared philosophy. So I don't see it as anything but a good thing for the Denver Broncos moving forward. Now, Will, you touched on this a few minutes ago, but let's let's get to it now. There was an interesting exchange, an in- interesting moment when D Mac of the Fan asked Elway to. Kind of articulate what his own failings have been and how they influenced this 5'11 season, what he learned. And Elway got a little fired up. Listen to this.
3: Well, you're always learning, you know, and you're always learning every year. You, you look at different players that evaluate, uh, players that uh, got better and played as well as you thought they should, or other players that didn't play as well as you thought you should. And so, um, you know, it, that is, it's a tough situation. Evaluation's always tough. And so we continue to learn. I think every time you make a choice or you go make a decision on a guy, you see how it turns out. Then you look at it and say, okay, how could have I have got better? What did I miss? And what did I get? And so every player that you pick in the draft, we go back and evaluate every player in the draft and what this kid was when we got him, what we thought he was before we got him. And then, then we, then we learn from that. And if we don't learn from that, then we don't grow and get better as, as evaluators and providing guys for the, for the football team. And so um, Mac, I will tell you this, uh, I always try to get better and I don't have all the answers. I want to search and find all the answers, because I want this team to be as good as it can possibly be. I'm fortunate in the fact that I've played for a long time, and I've been in this job now for seven years, so therefore I'm always trying to get better. And as soon as I think I've got it down, I'll retire. And then I'll be doing what you do, because then you know it all.
2: T Mac, we've talked about it before. There's a guy. He's always asking the tough questions. Sometimes that surprises me that the Broncos even let him in the building because he can be a little bit of a troublemaker. But he knows what he's doing. He's very savvy. And sometimes he, those tough questions have to be asked. You know, this is a question that's been on the minds of many in Broncos country. Elway's been on his job now seven seasons. He's reached the pinnacle of success, but he does not know it all. And it's important for him to strive, we touched on this, surround himself with the right knowledgeable people. And as a competitor, I believe him when he thinks he's mastered the art of team building, he'll retire and he'll leave the destiny of the Broncos to somebody else. And for those of you that feel like Elway should be fired, when he finally does depart, if I can be, you know, put my my Nostradamus hat on for a second here, it won't take long for Broncos fans to wish that John Elway was still running the show. So appreciate what he does now. It might not be perfect, but when you lose a legendary quarterback like Peyton Manning, just like when the Broncos lost John Elway, it's going to take a little bit of time to rebuild and bounce back.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I don't I don't think Broncos fans especially are <laughs> taking the time to really appreciate what they have at the given moment, and maybe it's a little bit more difficult after a 5 and 11 season. But I think you have to work in in terms of Relativity when you're talking about a guy like John Elway and obviously he hasn't been perfect and he's had plenty of flaws uh, As a general manager, you know the draft being one of them uh, especially the middle round but look around the league and Ask fans of the other 31 teams If they'd want to have John Elway as their general manager and basically leading their organization in terms of personnel um, in terms of being a face all all the things I said before yep and they're probably you can probably count on one hand the number of teams that wouldn't switch out their general manager VP whatever you want to title him as and I think that's a testament to obviously not just this season because it wasn't a good season but just the 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 lifetime achievements, the accomplishments in so many different facets. And I, I think it really speaks to John Elway as just like kind of a, I don't want to say a football mastermind because he's not one of those guys you think of, but just kind of a cerebral, you know, football guy. And as people in the media, it's very easy to second guess guys because we don't have to make those types of decisions. And we're never going to be criticized like they are. And so I think that, that DMAC thing was kind of a, an opportunity to, to step back and be like, wow, <laughs> these guys have really hard jobs. Amen, brother. Now, one of the biggest questions the Broncos
2: have to answer in 2018 as far as let's look ahead now, let's talk about solutions, is the quarterback position. It's absolutely their top priority this year. Elway addressed that, uh, talked about what Denver's outlook will be on the matter in 2018.
3: Well, I mean, I expect we expect to have an answer there, one way or the other. However, that goes, so um, I think that thought process hopes makes me think that we'll have a better year because the fact is we got to figure out how to get that position, uh, you know, playing better, and so you know that's what uh you know going into it we don't know as you said you know there's a lot of unknowns and so until we kind of figure out exactly what that is um you know once we figure that out then we can set a plan of how we want to want to attack it and and uh so but i think there is no doubt we got to get better at that position for us to have a chance to get better we got to get better at that position so
2: and then real quick what if the solution ends up being a rookie quarterback will that affect denver's plan for 2018 here's what he said
3: i mean obviously it's not ideal uh, but I will say this is I did it and it was tough and you know you uh, like you know like I said you, you drink through a fire hose but then again if you make it through that you got a chance to you know be tough enough to handle it in this league too so um, but again you got to play by ear and you know the personality of if it, if it is a young guy what's his personality where you think he is and and so um, again we go back and have to formulate that plan exactly what it's going to be but With that being said, the number one goal is we know we have to get better at that position. All
2: right, Will. The Broncos can't wait to solve the QB position. They're literally chomping at the bit. Um, They're going to pursue Kirk Cousins aggressively first and foremost because free agency comes first. It's not necessarily because that's the basis of their philosophy, but that's their first opportunity, and even Elway talked about free agency comes first, so that's where we're going to look first. And I know that Kirk Cousins is going to be the top priority uh, depending on whether or not Washington just lets him go unencumbered or if they end up tagging him and making it you know, unbelievably messy to acquire, and that might change things. But Kirk Cousins is going to be the top priority. Now, if that fails, then they will utilize the draft to solve the problem. And with the fifth overall pick locked in, they're going to be in good position to net uh, one of the top three signal callers in the draft, whether it's Josh Rosen, Sam Darnold, You know what, they might not be there at five, Darnold, if he declares. You know, same with, I don't think Rosen's even officially declared quite yet, but maybe I'm missing that. They might not be there at five, but guess who will be?
1: Baker Mayfield. I would think that he would be. There's going to be, there might be a little bit of wrestling uh, going on, and you never know just because we saw guys like Pat, the aforementioned Pat Mahomes jump about, you know, a whole round between the last time he played a game and the actual NFL draft itself. Yeah. So who's to say in January, you know, we'll wait until March, April, and then finally May to figure that out. But I think what the Broncos are going to do is I have a feeling that they they probably do like Kirk Cousins, but they probably like Kirk Cousins to an extent. And they're going to say, we have a price. And, you know, we don't know what that price is at this point. It depends on a lot of factors, and including who you cut um, after right after the season start or season ends. So, if Kirk Cousins' price is out of that range, I think they'll be willing to say, "All right, we didn't get a guy in free agency." Obviously, in the draft, you have a little bit more of a captive audience, and <laughs> mm-hmm. you're not negotiating with guys; you just take them, and then they're on your team. Yep. That's the that's the great part of the draft maybe Josh Rosen and the Browns notwithstanding. <laughs> but there's obviously an opportunity to trade up. You don't right. know quite who's going to be uh, there in terms of who's declared and who's not. I think the best bet right now is Josh Rosen, Josh Allen, and then Baker Mayfield, obviously. And then kind of rounding it out, you've got guys like Falk, Jackson. Um, I, th- I don't Rudolph. think played- – Rudolph, right – I don't think Clayton Thorson has declared, but you've got guys. You you got guys staggered all around. I think at five, the guy would be Baker Mayfield, and he's kind of in that range. But I'm just not. I don't trust. I, I don't trust a good quarterback process. A good quarterback prospect to to make it to five anymore. Well,
2: in a quarterback class where there's three really good ones, you know, and you look at who the top four are you got Cleveland twice, so you can pretty much count on them taking a quarterback
1: with one of those picks. They could take two. They, <laughs> they could. Would and it be got, shocking for them to take two quarterbacks and say, you know what, we're just so bad at <laughs> drafting guys that we're going to... We're hedging our bet. Yeah, really. Maybe, but then, you know, you've
2: got New York at number two. They are looking for a succession plan to Eli Manning. The Colts at uh, three, they have Andrew Luck, ostensibly, so... That really limits it to... The Broncos can pretty much count on two quarterbacks going ahead of them. So if it ends up being Darnold, if Darnold says, you know what, I'm backing out, I'm staying in in, uh, college for one more year because I don't want to risk going to Cleveland or whatever his, his reasons are, and it comes down to Josh Rosen and Baker Mayfield, then you might see the Broncos get aggressive. If Darnold and Rosen both declare, I think they'll stand pat at pick five. But if... That doesn't happen. They're going to have to move up if they want to secure one of those three guys because, look, Josh Allen's not a player you can realistically start as a rookie. Mason Rudolph, some of these other guys, they have upside, but they're not an immediate and, – and, you know, he talked about it, about what's ideal in terms of, you know, it's not ideal starting a rookie quarterback, but if that's what they're faced with, if they miss on getting the guy they really wanted in free agency, at pick five, that's what they have to do. They have to go get a quarterback – And if that's the case, it has to be someone who can contribute immediately. Now, on the topic of what Elway looks for in a college quarterback, we actually heard him use the word swagger multiple times. He talked about the importance of overcoming obstacles, perseverance, and he kept landing on swagger and confidence. Here's what he said real quick.
3: Well, I mean, I think half is what you see on film and the other half is figuring out what kind of guy it is. You know, I think the biggest challenge about playing the position is there's a lot of good football players, a lot of guys that have a ton of talent out there. But again, obviously stepping into that role when you come out of college and in college, you're allowed to be a kid. You know, you come to the NFL and the expectation levels rise. Especially if you're a high pick, and so you're expected, uh, you know, to be good uh, or show signs of being a very good player early, and so. But the other half is how are they going to handle the situation? How are they going to handle the bigness of being a quarterback in the NFL? And that is the biggest part. And I say it all the time: is trying to figure out. How these guys can handle the tough times because there's going to be tough times, and when the world feels like they're caving in, <clears throat> are they going to be able to battle through that? Not lose their confidence because once somebody loses their confidence at that position, and you're not afraid of it. Because what gets you here is your swagger and your confidence as a quarterback. If you got a chance to play in the NFL, and that's what gets you here, and you can't be afraid of it. And then all of a sudden, if you get in the world, and all of a sudden things aren't going well the world starts caving in on you and you lose that swagger or you lose that confidence it's very very difficult to get it back and so you got to figure out how strong they are about what they believe in how strong they are and 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 uh, you know what they are as a quarterback and to be able to battle through that and if, if they can do that then they got a chance to have a great long career so you know to me I say it all the time it's 50% the the, the physical side of it but you know the 50% metal side and the heart and finding out what they got what they have inside that's the difficult part of uh, and not only at the quarterback position I mean it's about every position because it comes down to what's inside and what's in that heart and how bad they want it and, and how great they want to be and if they want to be great football players they have a chance to be great
2: so much of it will of course does hang on what teams see on tape but also as the lessons have taught us from paxton lynch what the personality is and spending time with these guys and really digging in to what's between their ears and what's in their heart if i'm reading the signs interpreting what elway's saying kind of between the lines he again is describing baker mayfield to me mayfield has the confidence he has that swagger in spades, and clearly a very deep passion for playing football. As a as a walk on, as a guy that kind of forged his own path. So does Chad Kelly. When you think about swagger, you think about confidence. Kelly has that in spades, which is interesting. But beyond that, Elway's talking also about. The negative aspect of that, Paxton Lynch, his inability to approach life in the NFL as a pro while maintaining his confidence. I think it's safe to say his second year, he's lost a lot of his whatever confidence that he carried from his rookie campaign. And Elway broached the topic of Lynch in this, of course, the same presser. And he used the word unfortunately multiple times when talking about Lynch. Here's my take. Paxton Lynch does not factor into Denver's solution at the position. That doesn't mean he's not going to be on the roster, but he's not going to be the guy that they expect to be the solution moving forward. That ship has sailed. And again, putting on my Nostradamus hat for just a minute, I think the Broncos are going to deal Paxton Lynch to some quarterback desperate team, even if it's just for a song, and go get a sure thing at the position. And if it isn't Kirk Cousins, there have been other reports and things that I've heard too. It, again, Coming back to Baker Mayfield at pick five, it really feels like the stars could align that way for him.
1: Yeah, I, I think if you're using the word swagger to define a quarterback, that really narrows it down to a guy like Chad Kelly, whose nickname is literally "swag." Swag. And then a guy like Baker Mayfield. Who, and Josh Rosen has has it too. Josh Rosen's very yeah. confident kid too. I think Josh Rosen is cl- he's he's got confidence to the point of cockiness almost bordering on arrogance i think i think he's he's definitely a very different character than baker mayfield from what i've seen um not necessarily in a bad way because i think there's a lot of pluses and minuses um with both of those types of players right Uh, baker
2: like seems more like you think about swagger confidence and extrapolate that into he's more of a team guy within that those constructs whereas you look at a guy like rosen He's confident. He's arrogant. He has that swagger, but it almost is more on an individual basis. You don't necessarily yes. see that translating into his his, his homeboys on t- on the team.
1: Yeah, no. Jo- Josh Rosen really strikes me as a guy who's you know basically, and this isn't a bad thing, but he's out to get his clearly, and he's kind of, I'd say, like he's not afraid to step over a few guys, and he's kind of cutthroat. You know, as evidenced by you know the information leaking out that he doesn't want to play for the Browns. And while I don't blame him, because if I was a potential number one overall pick, I probably would rather not play for a team that's won one game in the last two years. But that's going to turn a lot of teams off. And the same people that get turned off by a guy like Josh Rosen, who's obviously mechanically proficient, got all the tools that you want, got the IQ and everything, are probably going to lean more to a guy like Baker Mayfield, who's not quite the traditional you know he he doesn't cut the mold uh, necessarily he doesn't cut the figure Mm -hmm. of you know your your prototypical pocket passer this guy's 6'4 got a rocket arm um, is going to stand tall and you know deliver the ball from you know a, a super elevated platform like Rosen Mayfield's obviously more of a scrambler playmaker can make plays I think in the pocket better than most people realize and I think he did a good job of showing that last night in the Rose Bowl but these are obviously two different types of quarterbacks and you know going back to the word swagger I think that you know if you obviously like just using like a little word association test (laughs) your mind goes to Baker Mayfield number one right
2: it absolutely does and again it also lands on Chad Kelly but unfortunately this is a situation going into 2018 where the Broncos can't afford To really roll the dice beyond what is, you know, beyond what they don't have a choice. Like, you know, at some point, whether it's Kirk Cousins, whether it's Baker Mayfield, Josh Rosen, you're investing money, you're investing in draft pick, you're rolling the dice in that sense. But what I mean is they need a quarterback they can really count on to carry the load in 2018, even if it has to be a rookie. And Chad Kelly, with all of his uh, health question marks and you know there's questions about his ability too but he doesn't fit that mold they they if they devolve to the point through injury or other issues where they have to call on on Chad Kelly then that's a different thing but he just like Paxton Lynch he's not a guy that factors into actual this the the day one solution in 2018 but we're running out of time and we don't want to miss out the opportunity to answer some of your questions from the Mile High Mailbag because we are your Broncos priests? We offer the absolution. We offer the answers to your burning Broncos questions. And, Will, we always talk about answering these things rapid fire but in this case so that we can get to everybody's questions because we are running a little bit long. Let's really do it this time. First question comes from Chad Montana on Twitter, at CMontana91. Do you think, Will, D'Angelo Henderson becomes a starter next year?
1: I don't think so. I I think that is kind of assuming that the Broncos let C.J. Anderson walk or not let him walk but let him go. Um, I think they'll probably end up drafting a guy in the middle rounds maybe a guy like Richard Penny uh, a guy like Ronald Jones out of USC just to name a couple of names but I think he's obviously going to have a more expanded role. Um, I, I think they're probably going to get closer to something that's Kind of like what they have in New England, where they're platooning backs a little bit more. But I think he's definitely going to get a lot of touches. I don't know if that makes him the starter, right. but he'll definitely have a more expanded role on offense.
2: I agree with that. Uh, next question comes from our friend Alex Valdez at Alex Valdez MHH on Twitter. His question: Can Bron Can the Broncos make something out of Cyrus Quanjo? He played really well when given the chance. It'd be nice to find another Shelby. Uh, Har- excuse me, another Shelby Harris type player with nothing to lose and find a gem. My answer to this question in terms of Cyrus Quanjo, where he fits in next year, he was solid uh, when he started at right tackle for the Broncos against the Chiefs in Week 17. I think that earns him an opportunity to come into camp and compete, but I do think as far as the right tackle position, that's going to be priority number two for the Broncos in the offseason from a personnel perspective. And they're going to bring in someone similar to the quarterback situation who's a sure thing. But Quanjo definitely, I think, has earned an opportunity to come in and compete, uh, if not for a starting job, to certainly be the swing tackle. And, of course, also it's contingent a little bit on what they ultimately decide to do with Menelik Watson. And then last one here, Will, will serve up to you from Aquaman, at AquamanH2O on Twitter. Question, where, draft pick-wise... Where should the best offensive line players go in the draft? Are any worth a fifth-round pick? And what is going to be the best QB available in second and
1: third round? So two questions there. Are there any O-line players will worth a f- uh, pick at at number five? I'm not super well versed on the offensive linemen in the in this draft quite yet, but from what I've heard, it sounds like Connor Williams, the left tackle from Texas, is that guy, and he he declared he didn't play in the bowl game, um, so it, it's kind of a a good question as to whether you're willing to eschew the quarterback problems until later and say we're going to take another tackle in the first round for the second year in a row which I don't think is necessarily a a terrible strategy especially if you can get a guy like Kirk Cousins in free agency or you've got a guy who uh, you really have your eye on in the second or third rounds to kind of move on to the latter part of that question but yeah I think it would be Connor Williams at five. Some other guys have talked about the kid from Notre Dame. Uh, his name's escaping me. At I think present. it's Mike, Mike McGlinchey.
2: Well, he's the tackle, but I'm thinking of that guard. Is it Notre Dame? What's his name? Eric and Nick and Carl are going to laugh at me right now. But, but yeah, there we'll there are there's a few <laughs> there's there's at least two guys who are considered at least top ten worthy. And if if nothing else, Connor Williams is consistently being mocked in the top five in uh, mock drafts across the internet. Quarterbacks available in the second and third rounds. You know, depending on what happens, if the Broncos swing and miss, they don't end up getting one of the top two or three guys with their fifth uh, pick, or if they sign Kirk Cousins, they want to get someone later on in the draft. I think you got to focus on guys like Mason Rudolph. uh, Lamar Jackson's not going to be a first-round pick, at least my my gut feeling at this point, unless he just blows the doors down at the combine. So there will be some options there, some more long-term developmental guys in the second, third, fourth, fifth round. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But that's all the time we have for today. You can find Will in the Twitterverse, at WillKey6, and myself, at Chad and Jensen. Also make sure you're following us at HuddleUpPod. Tweet us your questions. We're always going to try to address your concerns on the show. It's officially the offseason for us. We're uh, signing off. We're going to see you in August. No, I'm just kidding. It's the offseason, but that doesn't mean that we are going to stop podcasting. Between Will, myself, Carl, and Nick, focusing on the draft, we're going to continue to check in with you each and every week, bringing you some compelling Broncos draft uh, content. So make sure you're subscribing, y'all. For Will, I'm Chad. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Mile-high huddle.